Freethinkers, welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and I'm glad to have you joining us today. So this week, if you could believe it or not, Matt is on vacation celebrating his anniversary with his lovely wife. So the Free Thought Project contributor Don Vi Jr. is here joining me for this compelling episode with our guest this week, Richard Grove. Now I will be honest, I probably wasn't as familiar with Richard's work as I should have been going into this podcast. And I certainly had seen Richard's work in the past. I'd heard his name around. I definitely was familiar with his podcast. But guys, trust me when I tell you that this guy is doing huge things in the Liberty community and has been involved and active within it for about 20 years. Now, Richard actually explains how he was blocks away from the World Trade Center on 9-11 and shares his personal story about that day, which was very intriguing. But once we moved past that, I was actually floored to hear Richard's levels of knowledge when it comes to history, uh, especially regarding the cult, hidden history, and uh, specifically about the formation of the CIA, uh, Operation Paperclip. And we touched on so much more than that. And, you know, I should also mention Richard gets into his life-altering work with the University of Reason and his autonomy course near the end of the episode, so I would suggest sticking around to listen to that. And also, guys, I wanted to announce something big. We have uh, another very special guest scheduled for next week on this show. Now, many of you have asked us and said we needed to do an episode with Harvard graduate, New York Times bestseller, and Mises senior fellow, Dr. Tom Woods. So definitely keep an eye out for that. But for now, enjoy this educational and eye-opening conversation with Richard Grove. Mr. Richard Grove, it's great to get you on the podcast, and thanks for joining us today. Richard, you've been in this world for nearly 20 years now and been doing excellent work with Grand Theft World, which is your website, your podcast, and I believe the focus of your YouTube channel. Now, you're also a filmmaker, a forensic historian, uh, educator, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point in the show. And you got into all this around 2003 as a corporate whistleblower. Uh, you've been podcasting since 2006. And to be honest, Richard, your knowledge of various topics is extensive. So I'm sure our conversation could really go any direction today. Uh, luckily, I have Don Vi Jr. joining me today, hopefully to make this a valuable and educational episode. But yesterday, I was brushing up on some of your recent work, and I found a podcast with you and Charlie Robinson. And I, I love Charlie. You know, he he's got an extremely successful podcast macroaggressions. And in that podcast, my jaw was literally on the ground as you explained that you were actually a couple blocks away from the World Trade Center buildings on 9-11 and uh, had to escape the, the chaos in a car. Uh, you even had to swerve around a military blockade that was being set up just to get out of Manhattan. And in that interview uh, with Charlie, you also said that you you were there when you heard a loud explosion moments before uh, the second plane apparently hit the tower. So uh, I'm assuming you didn't find any hijacker passports on the sidewalk. <laughs> but uh, as somebody who w was literally at ground zero on 9-11, like, is there anything that you could recall about being there that day that directly contradicts the official story of the, you know, quote, 9-11 attacks? And also, I, I guess I was just kind of curious, like, how was this event the catalyst to three years later becoming a corporate whistleblower? Uh, that's, those are all great, great questions. Uh, Jason, Don, 
Hi, how you doing? Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm a big fan of your work, Free Thought Project, uh, going back 10, 10 years. And Matt's on vacation. I say shout out to Matt. I follow him on Twitter too. And uh, you guys have done a lot of work for the Liberty community, and I really appreciate that. As a, a whistleblower and uh, eyewitness to some of the stuff that happened on 9-11. Uh, to take you back, I went to public school. I went to university for five years, got my degree. During that process of getting a business management degree, I realized that the business management degree was never going to get me anywhere in life. So I bought into a franchise during college. So like my second year of college, third year of college, I, I bought into a franchise. I invested $5,000 and I got these amazing skills of entrepreneurism, of executive skills, attitude of gratitude, culture of excellence, uh, definition of integrity. And that set me apart from everybody else that I was going to school and graduating with. When I graduated, I, I got the diploma in the mail. I didn't go to graduation because I'd already been working in a corporate job for two weeks. So while my friends were like tossing their hats and stuff, I was picking up the biggest paycheck of my life having just gotten out of school and landed a really great job in a sales position that leveraged the skills I taught myself during college. And that set me apart from people in corporate world because they didn't have any sales training. So I rapidly rose through one, two, three, four companies before I moved to New York City. So I started out in Princeton, New Jersey. I moved to DC, had another job in DC, like outside in Virginia. Uh, and then I had a job that took me, my territory was New York City. So I was like, you guys should move me there. And so in 99, I got to move to New York City. Now I'm from Western Pennsylvania. I grew up in the sticks. I mean, I, I literally grew up in the woods. So seeing New York City my whole life, like that's where you go to realize your big dreams, right? And my goal was to go off and make my fortune and earn a million dollars before I was 30, because that was George Bailey's goal. And uh, it's a wonderful life. I thought that was a good goal. And I was, uh, I was on my way there and I did make it there by 30. So that was a good, it was a naive goal. Along the way, I learned a lot of hard lessons. And uh, as a result of all the things I learned, it wiped out my career. Uh, becoming a whistleblower is not something I recommend to anybody because there's a lot of there's a lot of things in the territory they don't tell you about. It's not on the map. So I encountered those things. I call that my million dollar education because that was more valuable than anything I got uh, in schooling. So uh, I found myself working in New York. I was living on the Upper West Side and I wanted big clients. And I worked at a little company that had just gone public. It was called Silverstream Software. It had like 300 people. And I was looking like our product, what we sold was a web server. So everybody's trying to get on the web back then, right? It was five grand. And uh, I was like, we need to find a million dollar client for this company. And so I did. I found a company that had a project and <clears throat> Silverstream was, you know, the underdog in that situation. Uh, we were up against IBM and these really big companies. So we used like the David and Goliath strategy. And I was able to win them over and show them how our small company was adept and could make these changes. And they're trying to do stuff no one had ever done before in technology. And uh, we won that contract. So that was like October of 2000. Okay, October 2000. So I'm servicing this account. And Marsha McLennan has a headquarters at like 1666 Avenue of the Americas in New York City. But I never went to their headquarters. All the people I dealt with were in the World Trade Center in the North Tower. And we had a whole team of people working there for like nine months. I had an office and cubicles there for all the people that were working for our company. So I had a pass. So I started with a visitor's pass to go close the deal. But then I got a, I got a building pass from Marsha McLennan, my client. So I don't know, two or three days a week, I'm down in the World Trade Center. I'm working with the team. We're trying to get these goals done. They have a big marsh.com project coming up and uh, we're getting that done. And it's like June of 2001 and we're uh, bidding on Marsh phase two, right? Which is supposed to kick off in July. So we're done. We're finishing up our project and I'm pitching the, the phase two. Now phase two is $5 million in software and it's like another $5 million in services. $5 million in software. I get paid 20% commission. Can you do the math? My job in my mind was I want to take down this deal. I want to get my million dollar commission check and I want to retire. So I was planning to retire like the summer of 2001. So I get this uh, agreement on Monday, June 4th. And uh, the C uh, chief 
chief information officer, oh, it's the global CTO. Uh, this guy, Gary, he calls me and says, hey, uh, we're going to approve the deal and we want to get started and let's figure this out. So then I go home Monday night and I write an email to my team. And I'm like, hey, uh, by the way, there's a whole bunch of hours we're not being paid for. So I felt bold enough now that I'm closing phase two to be like, hey, you guys owe us a lot of money from phase one. And I was asking the executives, like, what's up with all these numbers? And so I go to work the next day. I'm going to work with the mindset of I'm getting a million dollar paycheck, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Sure. I walked in and uh, my boss, I'm in my coffee. I'm in making coffee in my office. I had a coffee machine in the office. And uh, he comes to my office and he goes, hey, uh, and now this is a Madison Avenue office. I'm not in the trade center. This is the, the Silverstream office. And he says, hey, can you come down the hall to my office? I said, sure. I followed him into his office. He walks into his office and goes towards his desk. I'm following him in. And this guy closes the door behind me. So someone I didn't see in the room stood behind the door and closed it like they're a child. Right. <laughs> and they said, Rich, today's not your lucky day. We're letting you go. And I laughed. I was like, right, dude, I'm bringing in a million dollars. And they're like, yeah, well, uh, customers complained about you. And I was like, who? And they're like, well, no, no one really, but we're making this up and we're going to let you go anyway. So we had like an hour long talk. And for me, I was planning on retiring anyway. So I was like, these people are just trying to steal my commission, you know, and I'm going to go away. I'm not going to fight over it. I got money in the bank. These people are losers. And I did. I left and I went to uh, Cabo San Lucas for a couple of weeks. I bought some uh, apartment down there, like a timeshare, which was also a ripoff. That's a whole nother story. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so I was having a summer, I was chilling and, um, I got sick in August and I ended up in the hospital. Okay. Uh, my gallbladder exploded and I had to have emergency surgery and I don't have healthcare other than Cobra from when they fire you. Right. So they came back to me, the, the company Silverstream that fired me, they came back to me and they offered me a contract and they say, Hey, uh, we heard you in the hospital. Sorry about that. Your Cobra is about to lapse and you could have medical bills. And they said, but we're going to extend your healthcare coverage because we're great people. And we're going to give you $9,999. And we want you to sign this document. Now I'm fresh out of surgery a couple of days. I'm on painkillers. And I was like, you're giving me 10 grand extended healthcare here. Here's my signature. Right. Sure. But then I started asking some questions like, why did they just come to me? How did they know? Right. How did they know? How did they come and ask? Why was that specific number? And what else is in this contract I just signed? Oh, extended confidentiality, all this sort of stuff. Right. So uh, from there, I became suspicious. And at the same time, in the next week or so, I had a new job opportunity and I was bored. And so I took this job opportunity and it was a buddy of mine. I knew and he was in town with his boss and they needed New York City coverage. I took them to Windows on the World on September, Friday, September 7th, whatever the Friday was before 9-11. And um, it was another web server company, like a competitor to Silverstream. And it was a good deal. And I was I was all set to fly out to Silicon Valley the week of 9-11. So I was supposed to be out there like Thursday. And so then at that dinner, I got bold. I had a couple martinis. I got this job offer. I got some questions. So I made a call from the house phone inside the windows on the world. And I left a message for Norma Taddy and Taddy was uh, the executive assistant to the woman that was like running the deal. And I left a message and said, you and your people are going to be fired after this project. They don't have a plan to keep you. And I have these documents and there's something going on and there's millions of dollars involved. And since you're getting fired, like you and your team are getting fired, I trust you guys to figure out what's going on. And I got a call back Monday to be there at a meeting on Tuesday to drop off these documents. Okay. So Tuesday, my plan was for the week, I was going to the beach Tuesday and Thursday or Tuesday, Wednesday, and I was flying to California like Wednesday. So I got shorts and a t-shirt. I go to the garage. I go to get my, uh, I had a Range Rover and, uh, the garage is like, Oh, it's up on the sixth floor. We can't get it right now. And then I said, give me the Porsche. And I have a convertible 911 Porsche and I drove that down. I was going to go to the beach in that. So now I'm driving downtown. It's a beautiful Tuesday morning. Uh, there's not a cloud in the sky. I'm jamming. I got a CD playing because that's how you roll back in the day. <laughs> and I got a blue folder on the seat next to me. And I'm going down and I'm almost down. I'm below Canal Street, but I'm not quite to the trade centers. And I got to a red light and the red light, it, it, like there's traffic and the red light changed. And then we didn't really cross the intersection. And I was like, oh, that happens sometimes, right? 
And then it's like, nothing's moving. What's going on? And then I turn my radio down and I heard a, a cab next to me and they're playing the news, which is 1010 wins in New York. And there's, a, there's been an accident at the World Trade Center is, is how I hear it. And I look up because at that point I'm close enough. Like you have to look, look up like the buildings, like, you know, it wasn't obvious to me that there was a bunch of smoke coming out of the building. So now I'm like, okay, so there's smoke coming out of the building. And I'm expecting fire department, that sort of stuff to come. So the first thing I heard on the news was, uh, I can't remember which was first, but first I thought was a Cessna. And you know, I see Cessnas fly down the river all the time and they could get blown in the building, wind shear. Sure, I could see that happening. And then the next report was like, it was a helicopter. I'm like, again, an accident, nothing we can do here. So I went down and the, the fire department's not there yet. So I'm on uh, West Side Highway and I used to just like, as silly as it sounds, I used to just like drive in front of the Marriott and valet or park in front of the World Trade Center and put your blinkers on and run up, run upstairs or something. You know, it wasn't like a high security terroristic type thing. So I pull a left onto Vesey Street because I'm not trying to go past the World Trade Centers now. And I see that I'm not going to go in or park. So I'm on Vesey Street and there's a lot, there's again, there's traffic. So now I'm between World Trade Center six, World Trade Center seven and like World Trade Center one is like right over my right shoulder. So I'm, 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 and I'm fast, I'm facing east. So I'm, I'm driving toward like what would be like Brooklyn. Right. So I can't see whatever happens at tower two, but when tower two explodes, tower six also has some incendiary type devices go off inside. Not so much that it shatters everything into the street, but flashes going off inside with loud noises that are synchronized with World Trade Center 2 when it when it explodes. So it goes from me sitting there like, when are the fire department going to come? Who's going to save these people? This sort of thing, right? And when the two things happen at once, after I already knew that North Tower was on fire, uh, I panicked. It was the scariest thing I have ever experienced in my life. And I got the fuck out of Dodge. And on the way out, there was a, a guy in military fatigues and he was moving like one of the wooden New York city barricades across the street that I took a left on to get into the Holland tunnel. So as I'm going through that tunnel, I, I come out in New Jersey, I break a left. I start heading South toward my buddy's house in Princeton where I used to live. And I'm like calling everybody. I'm like, turn on your TV. The world is ending. And then the Pentagon got hit. Like while I'm driving, I'm on the Jersey Turnpike or whatever, going south. And then by the time I get to my buddy's house, I was able to go in, wake him up, bring him downstairs. He's like, what's going on? I'm like, I can't explain to you what's going on. You have to see, you know, look up the TV, look at the, you know, and that's a stupid thing to say in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my other buddy from across the street, his uh, uncle was a senator at the time and he came over he goes do you guys see what's going on because he heard me ripping into the driveway and we all watched like the south tower fall and i said this doesn't make any sense those towers are huge and then a couple minutes later you know half hour later whatever the second the north tower fell and i was like again this does not make sense so between the synchronized explosions and the fact that each floor of the World Trade Center is one square acre of reinforced concrete, and there's 220 of those. And I saw them turn to dust and deverticalize in a matter of seconds that day. So I had some disbelief, but I didn't have any history to fill it in. Like I knew a little bit about Iran Contra and stuff, but I had no idea that uh, terrorism would be happening on our soil in that type of way. And then as soon as I started looking into it and it took a while it took a, a series of other things to kind of be the splinters and be like what's going on here but by like november i'm catching on to there's insider trading there's a gold vault under the world trade center the people that were my clients were in control of the security company that had the gold vault you know contract and there's trucks that are half filled with gold that looked like there was a theft that got foiled by the you know deverticalization of the buildings and a whole bunch of stuff just started stacking up, but I still was in need of like, you can't, there wasn't anything to do full-time research back then, as far as I understood. So I went back to work in November of 2001. So like two months after 9-11, I go back to work. I became the director of sales for uh, a startup 
artificial intelligence company that had amazing technology that then disappeared from the market shortly after I got fired from there. I got fired from there because I wouldn't lie to the, the chief information officer for General Electric worldwide. And I stand by my decision, to be honest. And so things like that happened. And, uh, you know, my next job after that, I was asked to do a whole bunch of things that were illegal. They asked me to falsify documents. And I, I went through the official process of blowing the whistle. I experienced escalating retaliation for like four months until I, I went to the SEC. I said, you guys are already investigating my company. I called the attorney from San Francisco that's doing the investigation. I said, here's what I have. And he said, and I was shocked by this, but he said, you know, we could put you in prison for sharing this type of information. And so I said, all right, so now I can't go to the law enforcement. So I pulled the, uh, the chain and blew the whistle internally. I wrote, uh, you know, here's my grievance. Here's what's going on. Here's my evidence, more importantly. And I sent it to the, the senior vice president of HR and the chief legal counsel for what was my multi-billion dollar employer EMC company, which is now Dow EMC. So in court, it took like another three or four years, but I proved in court that they fired me on the day that I blew the whistle. They retaliated in, in the form of termination with prejudice, and it was ordered by the chief legal officer. Now, that's a prison uh, offense right there. You're supposed to go to prison, interfering with whistleblower. Like, I know the law and the letter, and these people, it's an early warning system for them. So I scuttled a multi-million dollar career because I was trying to protect innocent people who were being taken advantage of by what the company I was working for was doing, putting a lot of people at risk that they could not see. And <laughs> the reward for that was you have no career, you're persona non grata. We crushed your credit. You can't go bankrupt, all this stuff. Like there was a whole line of things, right? From American express, like basically calling and threatening and like doing all sorts of psychological, like telling my wife, like, Hey, did you know he has a Porsche and he went to Victoria's secret? And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. All this stuff. Right. <laughs> so it was like, she's like, what is going on? I'm like, well, I think this has something to do with somebody made a call and said, get him out. Right. Like, so there was canceling back then, but there was no one, there was no social media to tell people. I went to Lowell Bergman and John Stossel and every other uh, you know, journalist. I went to, uh, who's the famous, uh, lawyer that every Jerry, uh, with the buckskin coat, like there was all these people they are like, you should call this person. You should call this person. And so I took my evidence everywhere and it was just like, nobody, it was too big for like, what's, uh, Bergman who does PBS frontline. His guys worked on it for like a year. He had two editors and these editors worked at newspapers and one of them got fired for doing this investigation. And the other one said, I don't want to keep doing this because I fear I'll get fired. So then Bergman said, Hey, this stuff may have happened, but we can't do anything about it. We can't print it, which was a shock to me because I didn't know that's how the American media worked. I had watched the insider with Al Pacino playing Lowell Bergman. This is why I thought maybe I could reach out to him. You know what else? I watched um, the people versus Larry Flint. Oh, and I sent what became project constellation. My first, publication that wasn't meant for the public, but I'd sent it to Larry and Jimmy Flint because I was using my executive contacting skills to be like, Hey, Larry's got a brother. He, maybe he'll read the email or open the package. Right. And, uh, this is 2005. So I got a cease and desist from Larry Flint and, uh, I'm going to read you the title of the, of what they <laughs> cease and desisted about. Let me put my glasses on here. I have this framed and my wife found it the other day in a box and it says, uh, <laughs> Uh, be advised that we are the attorneys for Larry FP, LFP Incorporated, Larry C. Flint and Jimmy Flint the second, right? And then it goes down here and says, uh, accordingly, we hereby request that you cease and desist from sending any further correspondence to LFP relating to the matters containing your emails to LFP with the subject heading SOS, your help requested, evidence of government complicity and war crimes against the people of the United States of America or any similar material. <laughs> we trust that you understand this position. We'll take no further action. Now, I will have it on the record that I was saying, Larry, there's something going on with 9-11. He already had a lawsuit against Rumsfeld at the time. That's why I wrote to him, like, hey, you got this. Like, this might be really useful in your lawsuit. And instead, you know, they're like, the easiest thing is cease and desist. Get this dude out of here. But a year later, Penthouse published the 9-11 David Ray Griffin cover story poking a whole bunch of holes in the official narrative. And I was like, that's just as good. 
I don't care if it's like, it's not about me. It's about people understanding that there are corporate United States and international connections that were not Al Qaeda. And when you follow the Al Qaeda narrative, it takes you directly back to MI6 and CIA. Now there was a famous lawyer called Ron Motley who run, who won a billion dollar tobacco suit. And he was defending the families in nine 11. He has an office here in Hartford. My wife and I went and met with their team. We said, here's our evidence. And our evidence is, yes, it starts with these Saudi proxy kind of Arab people, but it goes back to CIA and MI6, at which mm. point they're like, thank you for coming. Have a nice day. Because even though like, here, look, here's the here's the money trail. Here's who created Al Qaeda and put like, here's how it works. They're like, no, thank you. We can't, we can't, we can't let like the parents of, you know, grieving parents and widows and stuff know about this. Like we got an angle. And we're going to get paid over here somehow, right? Or maybe they didn't. I don't know what happened with his lawsuit. So what I learned was there was a, a, an aching gap in our media landscape where unless it's getting to Alex Jones, it wasn't going to get out there. And I sent that man 50 packages. But then when you get to meet him later, it's like the InfoWars doesn't even receive mail at the place they do business. So when you send him packages, it's like not even in the same building. Right. And so and they and they get a lot of packages. Right. And what I discovered in Maria Heller, who published my first work, Project Constellation, it was my message to the future of America because nobody was listening back then. And I was like, but somebody in the future is interested in these corporate connections of AIG, Marshall McLennan, Kroll Associates, all these companies that had something to do and the insider trading and all this other stuff that went on that leads back to CIA, by the way, the insider trading. So. I was saying in two hours of a message that was on a CD, here's what's going on. Here's the evidence I've seen and somebody should do something about this. And so it was me saying, Hey, here's some work to be. Here's some additional work for you, Jason. Can you do this? And you know, people either were too busy or they had an angle or uh, like a predisposition or they were uh, like bought out. Right. So it was up to me. That's what my realization was. If I want this out there, I'm going to have to start learning how to produce media. And since Maria got the message and she's like, because I was like, you should point this stuff out. And she's like, no, I need to just play this for my audience. And I'm like, that's not what it's for. She's like, that's what it needs to be done. And on Memorial Day 2006, so 17 years ago last week, she published Project Constellation. And then uh, I got doxxed the day afterwards. <laughs> my wife's like, what the heck are, you know, everything's, you know, somebody doxxed us and in a very malicious way was trying to discourage me from saying anything else and i was like well that's one of the worst things they can do right there and it just happened so maybe we should keep moving forward i launched my first podcast 9-11 synchronicity in 2006 and that went for a couple years and then i expanded it into oh there's these globalists and internationalists i should do like a master class and educate people uh, it takes a long time so i had to build uh elements that make people's attention spans longer like a shoe stretcher right so the podcasts get longer and longer as you listen to them up to like the JFK 50th anniversary episode was 20 hours, but it's 20 hours of evidence you've never heard on the facts and that are like rapidly being censored out of the landscape. So what I've always been trying to do is take these, these elements, these substantial artifacts that exist outside the narrative and include them in these uh, messages in a bottle, if you will, that are preserved on people's uh, USB drives and it's in their safe and it's on DVD and it's out there on torrent just to get this information to the future. Because what we lacked growing up was a transparent and accurate and non-distorted view of our own history. And if we can capture that now real time and bottle it up, I know people listen to us now. That's great. But it's really so that you can educate your kids on once upon a time, this is how freedom triumphed over tyranny because these elements were forgotten and brought back into the population by independent media producers in the early 21st century. So I know that's a long answer to your question, but I wanted to make sure I, I didn't leave out the, the important stuff. No, that's a, a wonderful answer. And God bless you for doing that, man. And uh, I mean, that's, you know, so important. And uh you know, it seems like the CIA has their grubby little hands and just about everything. And I know we're going to get into that in a bit here, but I think it's safe to say that being a whistleblower is certainly not for the meek or the docile, you know, and uh, you mentioned it there as like a early warning system for the oligarchy. And uh, that seems very much the case. I mean, if you look at uh, Assange, you know, I just saw breaking news literally seconds ago that he just lost his appeal against extradition, uh, right? And just a couple of days ago, 
That is not why I wore my WikiLeaks ten years, ten million documents. Oh, I shirt. noticed that. That's sad. That's sad. That's sad to I, learn. At the same time, I just saw yeah a little a breaking tab come up on on Telegram as you were uh, sharing your story with us, and also a couple of days ago, you know, the FBI just reopened Assange's case, uh, which was reported out of uh, God, what was it? I think it was like the Sydney Herald. Uh, and of course, you know, look at what happened to Snowden. You know, we just crossed the ten-year mark now uh, of him being exiled to Russia. So yeah, I don't, I don't think. I mean, you certainly have, um, I, I guess, uh, the prestige in, in a way when you do blow the whistle. But I don't think it's for people who don't really have a, a good grasp on what they're getting into. And uh, unfortunately, not everybody gets that type of treatment, too, right? I mean, just look at Reality Winner. Like, I think she just had a Netflix documentary. Uh, made about her but for the most part like she was kind of an afterthought as far as being a whistleblower and in, in many ways uh compared yeah. to her. they see him uh, now the the trend is like uh if you're a whistleblower you must be a criminal that's what the congress looks at those fbi and irs whistleblowers from uh you know the, the last couple weeks couple months i mean they just basically they try to destroy right. you they try to destroy you and it's much easier for them to destroy people today than it was 20 years ago right right and, so and there's canceling like you know they can cut people off from like paypal and financing and all this other stuff it's like that wasn't really the thing it was like you lose american express capabilities you get your credit crushed but it doesn't prevent you from like changing industry or something like that right those people today are like immobilized yeah. and the motivation for them to do so is so much higher now because like back in the day you know 1999 2000 2001 you know like you said it was almost impossible to get information out what well, now in this information landscape where it's very easy to expose, hey, they're doing some messed up stuff. They have this, uh, they being those in power, have this much deeper incentive to try to control the narrative and shut down whistleblowers and demonize them in the public eye because it's the only way that they have to try to protect themselves in the midst of their doing all the messed up stuff that they do because they realize, at least to a degree, the public are not stupid anymore. We're, we're paying more of a close attention to what they, what it is they're doing. And as you've, as you've mentioned, Don, you know, on the flip side of that, if, if there is a whistleblower that they're propping up, there's probably a good reason why, right? Like they, yeah. they want to actually try to put out a certain agenda or excuse me, a certain narrative on a certain topic and kind of get ahead of the curve and kind of like a limited hangout type of fashion. Precisely. Yeah. You mentioned World Trade Center six and your yeah. um, in your story there, Richard. And I don't think a lot of people really know much about World Trade Center six. Now, it was destroyed on 9-11 uh, because of the collapse of the North Tower. And it uh, housed uh, the Customs Service and other had other tenants, including the IRS, uh, the Department of Labor, Commerce and Agriculture um, and uh, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms as well. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, not many people really talk about World Trade Center six, which is kind of strange. I mean, we all know about World Trade Center seven, of course. And, um, you know, over the past month and a half, there were two huge news stories related to 9-11. I'm sure you heard about these. Uh, as you'd expect, you know, the corporate media is completely silent, highlighting their allegiance to the same cabal that likely orchestrated the events of that day. Uh, one of the stories was a study by the Cost of War Project at Brown University's Watson Institute uh, that made the case that the post 9-11 war on terror may have caused at least 4.5 million deaths in around half a dozen countries. Uh, and the research also suggested that uh, it, 38 million people had been displaced or made refugees. Um, and also there was a, a stat in there that uh, the government spent about $8 trillion on these various wars, which I don't know, seems pretty significant and newsworthy to me, you know, and uh, before this interview, I actually looked on Google News just to see if there's any mainstream media coverage of that story. And I literally found one article from The Hill. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> uh, the other story was uh, from a court filing from the Guantanamo Military Commission, uh, which suggested that two of the 9-11 hijackers were actually being monitored and groomed by the CIA, which, you know, again, seems pretty important for the mainstream media to be sleeping on. Uh, now, I, I suppose that we might be getting a bit closer to the truth. Can I hook you up? Yeah. Can I hook you up, though? Like you're getting close to the truth. It's like we're trying to line up a trailer with the truck. Can I tell you if uh, like we'll show you how to get the, the ball over the, the hitch over the ball? 
Yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely. All right. First, I'm going to pick up. Uh, I dropped the attorney's name earlier. Jerry Spence was one of the famous uh, human rights attorneys and uh, that I'd reached out to. And I didn't want to leave that like the audience uh, lingering on that. All right. So now to answer your direct question. Before you want to, I mean, so it's very popular in America to look at the CIA and point fingers and say they're bad. They're doing a lot of bad things. I'd say, yes, they are. I agree. Maybe we should look at how they began and how they began was our good buddy friend over there across the uh, ocean. I think his name's John Bull. He's, he became friends with Uncle Sam and they struck up a special agreement, special relationship, they call it. And now our former enemy, the British Empire, transformed itself into a commonwealth and they brought their statecraft and their spycraft to America vis-a-vis -vis World War One, World War Two, which they instrumentally uh, got us into in a very dishonest, unethical, uh, immoral way, right? Between the Lusitania and Pearl Harbor, which they knew about and helped to facilitate both of those events to get America into these wars. So now our enemy is our friend. Right. We don't know any better. Our enemy sets up our, our uh, central intelligence. It started with OSS, but then they're like, hey, how do we keep it going after war? We're going to make CIA. Uh, they also set up our NSA, right? Now, GCHQ starts in like 1901. Technically, if you go back into the 1800s, they were tapping telegraph lines, the British, right? Americans didn't know how to do all this stuff. So they bring their spy craft. Mm -hmm. They bring, uh, there's the Zimmerman telegram, all that sort of stuff around World War One. We don't know how to work this stuff. They did. They were experts at it, right? So by the time you have like G or G Gordon Liddy using the Budinsky to, to like, uh, tap his own prison warden, uh, like that, that's, that's amateur American stuff by the British standards. So when you're looking at all the coups over the past 70 years, it's MI6 leading CIA to places. The British have had interest for centuries in a lot of cases like Iraq. That's a British territory, Afghanistan. This is a British territory. The British fought the first, second and third Anglo Afghan wars before America got in there with 9-11 for 20 years for no reason, right? So the, the notion that the Islamic terrorist faction of Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11, and that triggered 5 million deaths around the world and $9 trillion in spending, right? That's the official story, okay? I'm going to make the same point I make about Kennedy. Why are there 30 volumes to the Warren Commission report if it was just one dude and three bullets, four bullets? doesn't make any sense. So when you look at these narratives, you got to look at why, what's all this copious data to make us believe this official narrative that seems very simple. So MI6 started sure. in the 1920s, grooming the Arabs to their purposes. They set up the Saudi kingdom. They recruited Ibn Saud. They helped to create the Muslim Brotherhood in 1928. And one of the chief progenitors was St. John or Sinjin Philby, Kim Philby's dad, right? So he grooms this Arab proxy force who are fascist Nazis, lovers of Hitler. Okay. And the second generation of those people, they train Osama bin Laden. So they got this nice group of people that they can use as a proxy force very conveniently to destabilize the middle East for maybe a Balfour uh, declaration type of agenda. So now uh, that get that proxy force of Arabs, uh, Arab fascists get sold off to Alan Dulles by St. John Philby, St. John Philby's kid, Kim Philby, who was also a big communist spy and leader of the Cambridge Five and all this sort of other, you know, parallel society type of stuff. So now by the time you get to the 1970s and you have Brzezinski doing Operation Cyclone and recruiting Osama bin Laden and the Mujahideen, uh, you know, these uh, freedom fighter uh, warriors, against the Russians to destabilize them, that's MI6 and CIA because they want to have control of the poppy fields. And they're going to get control of the poppy fields in the near future. Now, by the time you get to 1993 World Trade Center bombing, that was wholly constructed by the good people at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. What do I mean by that? Imad Salem, who was a FBI informant, an undercover agent, has disclosed through his lawsuits. Uh, his lawyer was Ron Kuby, I think. There are tapes where you can hear Antisev, the FBI special agent, and his uh, his uh, his operative, Imad Salem, discussing the World Trade Center bombing. And Imad says, you told me they were supposed to use a fake bomb, and then you told me to give them a real bomb, right? So it's, it's all there. So you can hear 
how the how the thing really works, right? But that's not the Arab terrorism we're looking for. We're talking about 9-11. So who are these hijackers who get most of their passports through Alex Station and Jeddah through Michael Springman, who's a whistleblower, who you should check out, right? So the audience needs to know. Like these things didn't happen without whistleblowers. It's just nobody thought to bring it to you. So it goes back to like the three days of the condor. Robert Redford's like, I'm going to, I'm going to give this to the New York times. And the CIA guys goes, what happens when they don't print it? Meaning they can operation mockingbird. We control the press, bro. Where do you think you're going to blow the whistle to right now? I did have someone say to me 20 years ago when I was doing this, because I said, they're wrong. They're, they're doing wrong. I can see that. I have the evidence and I'm strong enough to like do the thing. He goes, well, what, what, what happens when they don't print it? This was like, well known. Like, they, like I was, it was like, I didn't know I couldn't blow the whistle. They did. <laughs> they're like, you're not going to get anywhere with this. The lawyers, they, they, they try to scare you and tell you this, but they're right. It's a war of attrition. You can't win against a multi-billion dollar opponent. You should know that going in, right? So you can make more educated decisions. I'm not sorry for anything I did. I wouldn't do it again the same way though. Because I have definitely learned about the process. So let's go back to this Al-Qaeda. Where do these hijackers trace back to? Uh, <clears throat> Daniel Hopsicker's Mohammed Atta and the Venice Flying Circus is a great film to, to watch first. Did you know all these guys were being protected and like trained at Navy bases and put up by the FBI and CIA? And like it was an op. And what do these guys think they're doing? What do the hijackers think they're doing? They think they're being trained to fly drugs because that's what these people who are handling them do for a living. It's Air America, it's, you know, Southern Air Transport, it's all the way up to Epstein and Wexner and all, like, there's a continuity, right? They fly skull and bones. They are the pirates, not just on the sea, but in the mm -hmm. air. AIG had one of the biggest private air, it was the largest private air force on the planet at the time, right? And then you find out they're in with the people and the cartels and the dealing of, you know, black markets, very profitable. And the most powerful players on the planet occupy that profitable area. And when people like Ross Ulbricht come along and say, hey, here's a way to improve our society, and he's not taught at his university how the world really works, then he takes some somewhat creative and naive steps and then runs into the cartel who says, unless you're going to give us $240 million, you can't play the game and you get a double life sentence, right? But if he had the money, if he had money, like HSBC, when they get caught, they just put James Comey on the board, give Hillary Clinton $100 million, give $2.3 billion as a fine that it disappears. How do I know that? I, I interviewed the HSBC whistleblower, John Cruz. So, yes, it was like there's not a platform for whistleblowers back in the day. And when WikiLeaks came along, I was really skeptical. I was like, how's this dude running this place and people aren't getting pinched for this? And what are the powers that be going to do? But I feel that Assange is he's going to be there until we get a president with the cojones to say, you know what? No, you're not going to do that. And what he disclosed, like the the collateral murder video is really what blew everything up on him. Right. Because the military industrial complex was like, we do not like you showing us killing Reuters journalists. That was the gist. Right. You remember that video? It was like 2011? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, where is he at now? Yeah. Julian's in Belmarsh, right? He's not in America. He's not in an American prison. They would like him to be. But right now, the people he pissed off, they're keeping him over there. It's not the Americans who got pissed off because he disclosed our secrets. The people that handle America got pissed off because he started showing what was up. And they're losing control of America as a function of that. And they didn't like that. So whether you want to call them like NATO or the globalists or, you know, the people who did 9-11, because it's the Americans, the British and the Israelis who did it and NATO. Right. So there's like, who are you going to blow the whistle to in that situation? I don't know. <clears throat> now it's a whole different scene. People can communicate more directly to each other. And, uh, you know, there's so many different ways to be creative and get IPFS and get stuff out there on the Internet forever. Back then, it was it was a very like we, at best like what came along the year after Project Constellation was like uh, Google Video, and then mm -hmm. YouTube came along, and then Twitter came along, and then you know I've never used Facebook, so I've never never been there. Considered that part. Well, I applaud you for that. 
you had the biggest loss on Facebook of anybody I know, <laughs> 6 million or however many people that, because everybody was following you guys back in the day until you got canceled. And now it's just yeah, we, the yeah, really, yeah. really smart, attentive people with discipline to keep finding <laughs> the cool stuff. True. I want to broaden that audience again. <laughs> and one thing I did Don, want to tap onto that phenomenal history lesson that, that you gave them about the, the beginnings of the CIA and the, the formations of the radical fascist uh, sort of Islamist groups in the beginning is another uh, important aspect that people should equally uh, look into to sort of understand the formations of this stuff is a project called uh, Project Paperclip when the, the OSS and the Truman administration literally brought over thousands of high-ranking Nazi officials. We're talking scientists, government officials, engineers, top, yeah. like, we're not talking like low-level Wehrmacht frontline soldiers. We're talking about shot callers and people that made the decisions in the Third Reich, in Hitler's close cabinet, brought over to the United States, given social security numbers, new names, new yeah. identities, and put in high positions in the OSS in the in NASA, you know, Werner von Braun was a Nazi. You know, it's literally the Nazi yeah. program is the reason why we had the Apollo program. And all of those people were the foundations of the CIA, like the, the original cabinet of CIA, with maybe the exception of Alan Dulles, literally all Nazis. Well, Alan Dulles was a Nazi, so I could, we could we could talk about that. <laughs> well, well, yeah, like ideologically. I mean, ideologically, he was a fascist, but like as far as being literally part of Hitler's cabinet, I mean, transplanted over. No, I mean, he, he was like he Nelson Rockefeller, like Alan Dulles is Nelson Rockefeller's lawyer. Mm -hmm. And the way that uh, Nixon gets to be president is he finds out that Alan Dulles and Nelson had funded the Nazis. And he's like, I'm going to let the public know this. And they're like, how about we make you vice president wow. next term? And then that's his rise to wow. fame. I didn't know that so, Dulles had also funded the Nazis. I just knew he was in bed with them, but I, oh, I didn't dude. know okay, so because I knew Prescott. Let me rewind you for a yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. So what you're pointing out, Operation Paperclip is just like Operation Gladio insofar as the British and Americans piled together for training and funding to do these things off the radar of people, right? So um, in the early 1900s, uh, World War I, 1916, Alan Dulles is a young spy over in Bern, Switzerland. And the British cut, catch him in a honeypot. They catch him sleeping with like some Polish agent or whatever. And then they're like, we're going we're gonna to deal with you. And he's like, how about I just come work for you? So now the British have the drop on a major American up and coming young man, right? Because Alan and his brother are from American royalty as far as statecraft goes. Their, their uncle or grandfather was Secretary of State Lansing, Robert Lansing. So these young lawyers... From Sullivan and Cromwell on Wall Street, suddenly become like the delegates for America at the Paris 1919 Peace Conference, wow. and this is their whole rise to fame. And then uh, early 1920s, Allen is uh, you know still building out this relationship that he has with the British. And then when it comes to OSS, that's the the British helping us set all that up. And the people that funded the Nazis, you had the Harrimans, the Prescott Bush group. There's a whole bunch of people from the West, from London and New York, you know, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution and Wall Street and Hitler. It's the same funding group, right? So they fund the infrastructure for Germany. They build the railroads. They build the industrial parks like Auschwitz, Auschwitzia was uh, a, a Polish industrial park built by Harriman money for those railroads. Not for the purpose of a concentration camp, but what became a concentration camp was a conveniently, you know, internetwork railroad system where that was the place to do centralized things. Right. So you've got the the Wall Street lawyers. Right. So it, MI6, it's Lon city of London bankers predominantly. That's there are the, the executives in America. It's Wall Street lawyers. So they got bankers. We got lawyers. OSS, uh, you know, uh, Frank Wisner, all these dudes that were in OSS. They're working like Sullivan and Cromwell type jobs. OK, so now what do they become expert in? They become expert in international law and uh, Alan Dulles and his group, Sullivan and Cromwell, they helped during World War II to internationalize all the Nazi companies so that they could survive the war no matter who wins. 
right? And in the in the fleecing of Germany at that time was taking of all their chemical patents and the patents for colors and all this other stuff we take for granted, right? There's, so there's this huge, um, and, and then there's a huge influx of American money because of our Great Depression was caused because so much American investor money went into Germany after they had hyperinflation and these Western bankers and robber barons bought it all pennies on a dollar, right? So now I inject into this situation a young Adolf Hitler who had been through his own trials and tribulations, seen by British intelligence to be a useful idiot. The whole Nazi uh, ethic is like British. The King of England was like in supporting mm -hmm. of this, yeah. right? So those things never died when Hitler went away. And so after the war, the people that funded communism and capitalism, they split those Nazi scientists. They're like, send half to Russia, half to America, and we can have a space race, yep. right? But we're not going to do it with what we had before the war. Otherwise, we would have had rockets, right? So they needed that Nazi development that took place with slave labor and atrocious conditions and all sorts of other things. Like they wish sometimes they could develop, but it's it's against the law and there's too many regulations. They say this all the time. Like Fauci said this at the at, with Rick from BARDA at that uh, Milken conference in October of 2019. We'd really like to do this mRNA thing, but oh, the regulations, right? But if they had a pandemic, they can wipe away the regulations and do the whole mRNA thing, which is what they did. So same thing goes for back then. These their their techniques and trends don't really change it's just different situations and then you can start to look at them and have a lot more veracity right there was uh plenty of people there's people on the warren commission there's several nazis on the warren yep. commission that's what that's those are the people who had the power to kill jfk and get away with it because they had already done a whole bunch of other atrocious things and the irony is even joe kennedy jfk's father was an avid fascist and you know a very open yes, supporter of the nazis but he's irish he'll always be irish and even though he was an american <laughs> ambassador to london the british never accepted the kennedys because they're irish mm -hmm. right and so when you want to put a hit on an american president and cover it up it's not from it's not led from inside this country it's led by the people who had deep capture control from the top down of this country, the Eastern Eastern establishment families who still did money in the opium trade, who have always been with Britain and the East India Company and those families, right? Those are the that's the power structure that had the capability, motive, means, opportunity to kill Kennedy and get away with it. And John J. McCloy being on the Warren Commission, John J. McCloy sat in the box with Hitler at the 1930 whatever Olympics, 33, 34, whatever it was back then. So these were people that wholeheartedly thought, thought Hitler was really cool, man. There was a whole American Nazi party, yeah. right? They tried to take over this country in 1934 in the business plot. Yeah, I was right? just We're, talking to people about that the other day at my, my buddy's birthday party um, because I'm one of those people I will, given the opportunity, <laughs> I will talk about all of this shit all the time. <laughs> and, yeah. and I brought that up because we just talking about how screwed up America is now. And I got to talking about, you know, a paperclip and the, you know, fascist origins. And I was like, if you haven't heard of the business plot and what, you know, Prescott Bush and the Rockefellers and all these people did in 1933, look it up. It's literally the foundations of what our country has become. You know, that was George H.W. Bush's grandfather. Bush was yes. president in 2003. We are not far removed from the business plot, no matter how people want to believe we are. We are not. Well, and so the business plot is an attempt by the people who are uh, eventually later, second, another generation, the ones that were taking out Kennedy. The business plot is interesting because uh, in 1832, the East India Company privatized opium so that independent companies could get in on the deal. Right. So you had companies like Jardine Matheson and Russell and Company and all these other companies get into it in 1832. That's also when they founded Skull and Bones, which is a German secret society in the East India Company College of Yale. Right. And what is a German secret society? It's like the German royal family being the British royal family. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a lot of parallels to like the system and how they work things. But they've always had an influence in arms dealing, human trafficking and illicit drug dealing because it gives them an immense amount of cash that's not on anyone's radar and that gives them power to buy off politicians and to sway elections and do all these other things that they do wow um geez yeah my head's kind of spinning right now it was a, a wonderful mine was too when i started learning this <laughs> stuff 20 years ago but uh, what i discovered was you can't read your way out of this problem from barnes and noble 
yeah. and that the books you need to read to get your way out of this problem, they're not going to show you, they're not going to be easily findable, but they do exist and they are real. And people did say these things and it's worse than I could ever tell you. Cause it sounds cliche every time I try to explain it, <laughs> but I encourage people to just read what they tell us about themselves. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like mm -hmm. I had a, a decent grasp on history, but you take it to the next level, Richard. And I try. Uh, yeah, we, we very much appreciate you doing that. I guess when the, the left says that Nazis are everywhere, I guess maybe they're kind of correct uh, and maybe a different context. But when I was working at that artificial intelligence company, I asked the guy who created the software, this guy, Earl, he, he's an author. He wrote Beyond Humanity, Cyber Evolution and Future Minds that was used for Spielberg and Kubrick's AI movies, right? Same movie, but Kubrick died. So I asked him, uh, first off, this AI that can predict anything in an IT infrastructure, can I use this to predict human behavior? And he said, I don't know. Come back to me and let me know what you think. And I came back to him and I said, no, it can't. And he said, why? I said, because the IT infrastructure doesn't lie to each other. So it's getting only valid data to model from. And we need a filter before we can even find out fact from fiction. He's like, exactly. So then I was like, okay, so this, this AI can be used for human good, but unless the people designing it understand freedom and liberty, it's not going to be. And the other thing I said was, hey, I've got this idea for a story. And I said, and it's, a, it's like a parallel future where the, the Nazis won World War II and what that would look like. And he goes, you might just be right. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? This is the most far out concept I could make up. And you're telling me that might be actually going on. I had no context for why he would say that. But Operation Paperclip and the funding of, you know, all these machinations that led to Hitler's Germany by people in the United States and, and Britain uh, are, is a whole different perspective. And the reason we don't get this perspective is because the British took over our education, turned it into schooling. So we shouldn't learn about our good friends doing such things in the world. And we'll think they're our good friends still. Yeah, Richard, you know, we're, we're getting close to the hour mark now. I feel like this conversation could very much go for another couple hours if we we had the time. I mean, I, I know that you're Definitely. yeah, you're friends with John Taylor Gatto uh, or you were with the, the late great John Taylor Gatto, I should say. And uh, I know that um, you're running his online course now, and I would love to get into that. I, I mean, um, I also our good friend and uh, researcher contributor to the Free Thought Project, Gavian Nascimento. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but uh, he's also a wonderful researcher. He talks about many of the same topics and subjects. He wanted me to get into the roundtable group with you. And I mean, Ooh, I just feel like next time yeah, I feel like there's so much, but <laughs> Gatto and the round table next time. Sounds like a day. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Uh, but last but not least, of course, you know, in your conversation with uh, Mr. Charlie Robinson, you talked about something that was very unique with your work. And uh, I'm glad that you did. I know this approach is becoming more popular because, you know, our type and in independent journalism, we, we need to survive and thrive. And uh, it's getting harder and harder to do that with the way they're placing censorship on us and everything. So you've come up with a course called Autonomy uh, that is very powerful. It's empowering. It's also uh, very successful. You're preparing for your 10th season now. And when I listened to you talk about it on macroaggressions, it definitely seemed like a no brainer. Like, why haven't more people not only invested in buying this, you know, and getting into this? Uh, this seminar, but why haven't more people thought of this course themselves, you know? Um, so I know not everybody has the skills necessary to teach this stuff. And um, your, your website gives a brief overview, which I thought summed it up well, which was to learn how to take strategic action to create positive momentum in your life and position yourself for success. And this seems like the skills many people in society are missing, especially men who are sorely lacking the divine masculine perhaps never had any mentors or taught any of these life skills. So do you mind telling us more about autonomy and maybe where people can learn more about it? Yeah, the gist is I, I was going through my own research and I was sharing that out there and I got to a point where some people were like, hey, I can't afford the subscription. And I was like, why can't they afford the subscription? Oh, what? they didn't get the same type of training I bought into in college, that franchise sales executive training, knowing how to market and hire and fire and find deals how to observe opportunity and interact with it. That's a missing skill set. And I use that to be, you know, million dollars successful by 30. This is something that more people should have. I had a great mentor. He passed away and he didn't really share it too far other than the organization that I bought the franchise in. That's who had started it. He was a former vice president of sales at Xerox and he quit. 
because he couldn't find qualified salespeople. So he created this company called uh, AAA Student Painters, and they would teach us how to run a business in the metaphor of here's a business you can run over the, the summer during uh, three months, right? So I had that training. I used that. If I didn't have that, I couldn't have been a whistleblower. I, I knew I could go anywhere and make my offer known and value clear in the market and get other work and these sort of things if I needed to. So that allowed me to take that step into the unknown. So uh, about five or six years ago, I had uh, realized that there's a lot of income sensitivity with the audience and they were having trouble supporting like my film projects and stuff. And they want to, but the cash flow is not there. So I said, why don't I take what I've learned from Gatto? Why don't I take what I've learned from the entrepreneur and the executive skills and the sales and the hiring, firing and consulting and all these sort of things. And let's make a masterclass on it. So I teach it twice a year. It's a 12 week intensive course. You probably need to put 15 hours a, a week of work in between the lectures, the Q and a sessions, the integration exercises, the other things that help you grow uh, in a rapid way in 12 weeks. And then the students get lifetime enrollment so they can keep coming back. So we're going into the 10th season. I have students who have graduated nine times and every time they go through, they're bigger, stronger, faster, better. They're working on new aspects of their life that they hadn't addressed in the first eight seasons. They're making progress. They're growing with the new students. Uh, the community is amazing because we do a really good job of making sure the people who get in are going to use it seriously and uh, actually get the best out of it. So if you're a casual tire kicker, it's not for you. And we're very selective about uh, who we can service because we can only service 100 people each season. So 200 people per year. And uh, we just crossed the thousand uh, graduate mark. So it's it's real deal. It gives you transparency before you even get to a place. I don't let people buy it until you've been in there like two weeks and had you've had your answers uh, to your questions. You've had a blueprint life strategy call and there's there's no pressure. So we created a system that delivers an excellent community of people. And then we just add all this infrastructure and value to it. And it's the best place I've ever worked. Hands well, down. Yeah, there's certainly nothing better than working for yourself. And there's that old saying, you know, I'd rather put in 80 hours a week working for myself than 40 hours a week working for someone else. And uh, it sounds like you're you're providing that opportunity. You're giving people the skills to be their own boss, to be an entrepreneur. And like I said, I just feel like we need much more of that, especially if we're going to build this parallel economy, uh, you know, which we're going to need to do eventually, right? Like this uh, system that's set up. I mean, this is interlocked with the establishment and we need to eventually break away. And I, I would suggest that's already starting to happen, but we need more entrepreneurs out there. We need people who are I agree. taking yeah, the bull by the horns and creating products and services that are gonna be useful, not only for the Liberty community, but are you know just for the market in general and maybe flavored with uh, a Liberty perspective or Liberty bias. Well, I, I, brought, I brought something for your audience with that in mind because I wanted oh, yeah. everybody yeah, to yeah. walk away with something substantial and it's gonna be uh, something you use for the rest of your life. So before you could even get into autonomy, we uh, train people for mindset. Cause if you don't have the right mindset, like I can show you what it takes to be successful and you're gonna have a piss poor attitude, it's not gonna work out. So we have a mindset seminar, it's like $300. I created a coupon code free thought and I'm going to drop the URL and, and your audience can use that to get that for free. Now, things that are free usually aren't worth anything. I promise you this is worth the advertised price and you're getting a good hookup here because I respect everything that's free thought project and that you guys and Matt have uh, put together over the past 10 years. So the University of Reason is uh, my college. It's where we host our courses and this URL goes to www.universityofreason.com forward slash mindset mindset is all one word and then you add enter the code free thought and it turns into free for you because you know how to type stuff <laughs> if that does interest you guys you will find that link at the bottom in the description or in the caption we'll make sure to include that and uh damn richard like i, I knew this was going to be a great podcast but uh it certainly exceeded what i was expecting. So I know you have the live stream on Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern on your Grand Theft World YouTube channel. Or actually, I think that's just your personal YouTube channel, right? 
Yeah, that's we got banned from YouTube. I don't know how these things work out there. So my personal channel is still there because I sporadically use it. You can see the previews for Grand Theft World on there. It's like a 20 minute preview of the seven hour show. Uh, The whole show is on Rockfin. It's on Rumble. It's on Odyssey. It's everywhere everywhere that it's allowed to be. It's on Bandot Video. It's an easy place to watch it. And uh, when we're streaming live, members get to sit in the control room. So I usually have a live audience of like 30 people in the in the control room who can like ask questions or type and stuff like that. And then the rest of the audience just gets uh, the live stream or the replay. And it's a, uh, it's, it's an analysis show. It, it does the week's news juxtaposed to historical views. And uh, we just got nominated for best analytical podcast by the American Liberty awards. Damn. Nice man. Awesome. Congrats. Yeah. And one thing I appreciate about your operation is like you guys really spread the net wide, right? Like you said that you've never been on Facebook, like congrats for that. Like that was our downfall was placing all of our eggs in one basket. And I, I know we had a couple smaller accounts on different social media platforms. Our Most of our emphasis went into Facebook. So I appreciate the fact that you guys are literally on every social media platform you could think of, even the small and obscure ones. And I know, you know, obviously a lot of people are on Twitter. It seems like a big place where the, the national discourse is going on right now. That's uh, you're there at Tragedy and Hope. But by all means, tell our audience where they could find your work, what social media platforms you're on and how they could support your mission. I think the easiest place is probably Linktree forward slash Richard Grove. Yeah. So I don't right. know how the URL, the, where the dot is in Linktree, but that's a thing. And I have forward slash Richard Grove. It's got all the links on there. Uh, getautonomy.info forward slash Ignite is the landing page for the course. Autonomyunlimited.com is the uh, digital consulting and marketing company that we have for freedom entrepreneurs who like to own their own list and contact their own customers without Facebook in between. And uh, grandtheftworld.com forward slash live is where folks can see uh, all the links for the live stream shows on Sunday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. And thank you guys so much for this invitation. I was really psyched. And uh, to be honest, I was I was preparing to interview the, you this morning, Jason. I was like doing all my notes and stuff. And then I saw StreamYard. I'm like, oh, he's interviewing me even easier. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. And, um, you know, your two decades of knowledge are, are certainly invaluable to the truth, liberty community and literally anybody with time. I mean, you put out so much information. I guess you got to have the attention span as well and the gumption to absorb the detailed information that you're dedicated to producing. But um, your work with autonomy it certainly takes that understanding to the next level with action. And, you know, obviously that's so crucial to the bigger picture of safeguarding liberty for generations to come. It's not just about knowing this stuff, guys, but it's also placing it and putting it in action. So thank you for your tireless efforts and remaining steadfast in your conviction for the truth. Well, thank you, Jason. Thank you, Don. Shout out to Matt. Thank you to everyone listening. And uh, yeah. We're, we're in it to win it. And it's not just knowing about the problem. It's about knowing how to enact the solutions with morals, ethics, and integrity. So we maintain the intellectual uh, high ground on this matter. And uh, we don't lose ourselves during the fight. Amen, brother. Peace.